Chapter 8, Part 4 from the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Peter on. For those who don't know me, I am actually, when you get to know me, you'll realize that I'm a creature of habit. I just like routine. I like doing the things, the same things over and over and over again, especially if it's working for me. And because of that, I don't like trying anything different or anything new. Because of the unpredictability about that, also the potential disappointment that I'm going to discover. And so I like routine. I like doing the same things over and over, especially those things that are working for me. Uh, a couple weeks ago, a neighbor in town told me that there was a new sandwich shop that opened up in town. And in her words, she said it was the, it's the best sandwich she's ever had in her life. And I'm thinking, really? Okay. So I was like, you know what? Let me give it a shot. I went there this past Monday with a friend of mine, and we had their sandwich. And I'm telling you right now, it wasn't, it wasn't even just okay. It was horrible. I mean, it was so, and it was so, I couldn't believe how expensive it was. It would have been cheaper if I went to a Korean restaurant, right? And I was just offended by how much they charged, and the food wasn't good. And so that's why, again, like, I don't like trying new places, new restaurants, because I'm, I'm afraid of getting disappointed like that. And so I'm very into my routine. I'm a creature of habit, and I think a lot of us are like that as well. I think we're quite like that. We're creatures of habit. And I think that's good to some degree, but here's the bad thing. Here's the bad thing. Sometimes, sometimes it prevents us from encountering new things that God may want us to encounter. That's the problem. You see, I think for a lot of us, we've become quite traditional in how we express our faith in God. You have certain, your certain ways, certain modes in how you engage with God. We've become habitual at it. And in some ways, we've become very traditional. Some of you grew up in certain traditions, denominations that you were taught how to worship God or how to follow God and how to express your faith in that traditional way. And so we're so set on that. Some of you have read books. Some of you have gone to seminary. You've gotten degrees. I've gone to two seminaries. And I've learned from professors that have taught me certain systems of theology that I really need to prescribe to, right? And thinking outside of that sometimes is very hard for me. I have a set of authors, Christian authors, that I love to read. I don't like reading new Christian authors because there's so many books out there and usually they're not very good, right? And so for me, I'm just like, I'm so set in my ways. I think a lot of us are like that. We're so set in the way and how we follow God and how we express our faith to him that we're not open to new things. And the problem with that is that sometimes it leads to disobedience. That we're going to actually become disobedient to him because of it. And that's exactly what's happening in this passage in John chapter 8. As we're going to finish up this chapter. We've been in this chapter for the past five weeks. Jesus is addressing Jewish leaders. He's addressing the Jewish community that are there. And they cannot receive him. They cannot receive and see who he is because of their tradition. Because of their own presuppositions about how the Jewish faith should be expressed. I mean, this stuff, these traditions have been passed down from generation after generation. It has lasted for thousands of years. Nothing wrong with it. Jesus didn't come necessarily to abolish the laws. But he came to enhance it in deeper and new and fresh ways. And the people of God could not accept Jesus to be the son of God because of their tradition. And I wonder how much of our tradition... How much of our way of doing things in terms of expressing our faith in God 
Though it might be comfortable. I'm not saying tradition is bad. Please don't understand, misunderstand me. I'm not saying that your tradition is bad. I think tradition is good. The way you express your faith is probably good. But you cannot consider that to be more important than obedience to God. Our tradition must always be submissive to our obedience to Jesus. Amen? So we're going to talk about this a little bit. We're going to talk about why is obedience so primary to our faith? Why is it so primary to our faith in Jesus Christ? And then we're going to look at the two key things that Jesus would want you to obey him in today. The two most important things that he wants you to center your life upon in obeying him on. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. John 8, 48 to 59. The people retorted, you Samaritan devil. Now, I just want to stop right there for just a moment. Now, remember in the previous passage that we looked at last Sunday, if you weren't here, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people that he's talking to, he's saying that your father is the devil. Right? They were really offended by that. And this is how they sort of retorted. This is how they go back. They tell him, they say this, they call him a Samaritan devil. It's bad enough to call somebody a devil. But to add the word Samaritan to it, it's even worse. All right? Samaritans and Jewish people did not get along. They hated one another. They were enemies uh, towards one another. In fact, if, if, if a Jewish person was going somewhere and there was a shortcut route to Samaria, they would never enter Samaria. They'd rather go the long way, go the roundabout, because they would not enter the village of Samaria. And that's why in John chapter 4, the disciples were astonished. They were surprised that Jesus wanted to go to Samaria and minister in Samaria. Because Jewish people, especially Jewish leaders, never did that. Jewish community hated Samaritans because they were half Jewish, half Gentile. And because they had Jewish blood, the Samaritans believed that they were God's chosen people. So that didn't sit well with the Jewish community. So they weren't just disliked. They were enemies. And so these people, these Jewish leaders, they called Jesus a Samaritan devil. That's pretty bad. Samaritan devil. Didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? No, Jesus said, I have no demon in me, for I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And though I have no wish to glorify myself, God is going to glorify me. He is the true judge. I tell you the truth, anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. The people said, now we know you are possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died. But you say anyone who obeys my teaching will never die? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I, want a glory, if I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it is my Father who will glorify me. You say he is our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be a, as great a liar as you. But I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And then Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. Ooh. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Not a great scene here. All right, let's unpack this. But before we do that, let's pray. God, we come to you today. Lord, uh, the courage you had to be this honest and this raw. Help us to understand this text. But more importantly, God, um, these people could not see who you really were because of their tradition. It completely blocked them. It fogged them. It created a fog for them to see who you really are. And God, I think for some of us, we have certain habits 
We have certain traditions maybe that we've embraced for ourselves where we've put you in a box. God, I pray that you would expose those to us and give us a desire, God, to let you out and to let you truly be God of our lives. So, God, that we can encounter you in new and fresh ways. God, may our tradition never supersede our obedience to you. And so I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray, God, it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 Okay, why is obedience so primary to our faith? Why is obedience so primary to our faith? It's simply because it glorifies Jesus Christ. All right? When you and I choose to obey Jesus, we bring glory to him. Now, obedience is such a major theme in chapter 8. For the past five weeks, we've been talking about obedience. Some of you are so sick and tired of hearing about obedience up here on the stage. But the reason we talk about it every Sunday is because it's that important to Jesus. He talks about it extensively. It's one of the theological themes in this entire chapter. And Jesus says this in verse 51. He says this. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Jesus is saying, if you obey my teaching, you will never die. Meaning you will have eternal life. So if you obey my teachings, you will have everlasting life. That's a pretty bold statement in which Jesus makes. But it's absolutely true. See, Jesus is saying that you cannot really enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not a Christian, really, unless you obey me. Now, let's just take a step back there because some of you are thinking, there's something wrong with the theology. There's nothing wrong with that theology. In fact, it's very good theology, all right? Jesus is not saying that you got to obey him in order to get to heaven because Jesus is the one who creates the position for us to go to heaven when we die. His, through his death and his resurrection on the cross allows us now, if we believe in him, to enter into heaven. However, however, obedience is not required for salvation, but it is the evidence of our salvation. That's the difference. It's not required for salvation, but it is the evidence of your salvation. You see, you can't just say you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for you on the cross and resurrected from the dead, but it doesn't impact how you live your life. That as you believe in who this Jesus is, it should impact how you obey him, that you should take his teachings very seriously and realize that Jesus has the keys to not just eternal life, but he has the keys to your life and my life here on this earth. And that when we obey him, it's not so that we can affirm his kingship only, but Jesus knows what's best for you and for me. And if he loves us so much and loved us enough to come and die for us on the cross and resurrect from the dead, don't you think he knows a little bit about what life should be lived like while we're here on earth? And so when you and I obey him, when we commit to ourselves to obeying him more so than even our tradition, we can encounter him in deep ways. We can see our faith will be so real in deep ways, right? And so Jesus says that if you follow him, you will never die. And the main motif of this passage is this. Obedience leads to glory. Obedience leads to glory. Look at verse 54. Jesus answered, if I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it is my father who will glorify me. You say he is our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. God glorifies Jesus because he obeys him. Because he truly obeys him. When you and I obey Jesus, we bring glory unto him. The problem with all of this is that the people of God were not obeying Jesus Christ because of their tradition. 
they were so steeped and locked and loaded with their tradition that it blinded them from seeing the Son of God. They were literally standing face to face with the Son of God, but they couldn't see him. They couldn't acknowledge him. They couldn't even encounter his power and his love because of their tradition. It's more so than just maybe even just your tradition that you grew up in in terms of your denomination. But some of us, we've kind of figured out, here's how we do the Christian thing. Come to church on Sundays, hear a message, maybe serve in some capacity, and now we're a Christian. I have faith in Jesus. Jesus is saying it's got to go so much deeper than that. That your faith in me has to be expressed through your ability to obey him. And that's important. And that's why Abraham is such a big character in this entire chapter. Abraham is such a big character is because Abraham understood what it meant to obey Jesus. We talked about it even last Sunday. Abraham obeyed God no matter what. He never asked questions, right? Oy, Abraham did that. And what you need to realize in the Jewish faith back in the first century, rabbis would teach in their synagogues that Abraham wasn't just a godly man. They would teach that Abraham was like this super prophet. That God had revealed to him the future of Israel and also the future that Israel would be blessed by the blessed Messiah. So Abraham knew all those things. And that's why when Isaac was born, Abraham wasn't just excited because finally he, his, his wife was able to bear him a son. Like many of us would probably be excited about that. But he was so excited because he knew that through the son will come Jesus Christ one day. That's the power of Abraham. Abraham obeyed. He didn't allow his traditions to keep him from being disobedient to God. And we do that sometimes. We're so set in our ways, in our tradition, what it might be, in how we sort of practice our faith, that it hinders us from seeing God in certain ways that I know God may want to see us. Abraham, I mean, God even told him in the beginning, he says, hey, Abe, I want you to go leave your home, and I want you to go to a land I'm not going to tell you where you're going to go. I'm not going to even tell you the name of the land, but it'll be flowing with milk and honey. And you know, back in those days, Jewish people, when they were born, the people of God, they never left their home, right? Because they often address themselves like where they're from. And so that's very important. They don't leave. Traditionally, you stay where you're born. And when God said leave, Abraham left. He didn't embrace his tradition. He obeyed and he walked. And it was through that faithfulness as he was on that journey that God revealed to him that one day he will be the father of many. You see, it was through that obedience. And so what traditions or what sort of understandings or what modes of how you express your faith in Jesus are you so set in your ways where you're not able to encounter him new and fresh ways? I worry about us sometimes. I wonder how much of us just go through the regular motions of what we think is right that we often sort of encounter our faith in such a way where it's just so predictable. Jesus says very strongly in Matthew 7, 21, he says this. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. He says, some of you are going to be in for a rude awakening. Just because you say, Lord, Lord, say, I believe in you, it's not going to work itself out. He says, only the ones who do the will of my Father will be the ones who will be able to enter heaven. Only those who are serious about obedience will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a real strong teaching, but it's something to encourage us of is that will you be open to new possibilities, new things that God may want you to encounter? That's not going to happen unless you're willing to be obedient to the things you may not want to do. 
I've learned in my own life, in my own Christian life, that that doesn't happen unless you and I are willing to do that. All right? And so Jesus is now sharing all this. And then he ends this in verse 57 in a real strong way. He says to the people, you aren't even 50 years old. He talks about Abraham. He says, Abraham was excited to see me. And they're like, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. The only other place where you see that phrase, I am, is in Exodus when Moses says to God, all right, you want me to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, but who do I tell him who sent me? And God says, you tell him I am sent you. That word translated is Yahweh. It means God the Redeemer. And so Jesus is saying before Abraham was, he says, I am God the Redeemer. That's why they picked up stones because that was so blasphemous to them. It was so blasphemous. Jesus wasn't just declaring that he was a good teacher, he was a good rabbi, he was a good prophet. No, he's saying, I am God. I am God. And so will you obey me? That is a question he's asking for every single one of us. He's declaring that he truly is God. Are we willing to? But how much of our tradition has actually held us back from encountering God in new and fresh ways? Today, I hope that I don't want you to forget about your traditions. No, you appreciate it, you respect it, but don't let your traditions go higher than your obedience to God. Our obedience to Jesus must always supersede our tradition. Amen? Always. Because if it doesn't, then you're not going to see God in you at first. And listen, I know some of you are real smart. Some of you might have even graduated from seminary. Some of you have probably read some real strong books about God. But no matter how much you know about God, I'm here to tell you this. God is bigger than that. He's bigger than all of that. And you cannot put God in a little box. you got to let him out. you got to trust in him because he's God. And all he's asking of you and I is simply this. Will you obey him no matter what? Will you? Will you say, God, I trust in you. I know you know what's best for my life. I'll do it. Will you obey him in that way? See, those are disciples. Those are the ones who want to walk in step with God. I grew up in a Methodist church. That's how I became a Christian. And um, when I graduated from high school, I went to college. And in the college, I was affiliated with a very charismatic uh, Christian group. It was affiliated with the Assemblies of God Church, the nomination. And so it was ultra-charismatic. Um, our Thursday night fellowship meetings, people were praying for one another. We were praying that people would receive the gift of tongues. And if you don't know what tongues are, it's a spiritual language that only the Holy Spirit and God understands. And so it's a special language. And so in our fellowship, that was a really important thing to ask for. It was a gift that we wanted. And so we prayed for everyone to receive it. There were, there were a lot of Thursdays where people would be praying for other people. And the Spirit would just kind of fall upon them that they would literally fall. And we call that, the technical word for that is being slain in the Holy Spirit. They were slain in the Spirit. And so Thursday nights, people were being slain in the Spirit. I mean, I was a part of that fellowship. That was on the regular for me. I was encountering God. It was incredible in some ways. And I was encountering that. It was the first multi-ethnic ministry I was, I was a part of. And God was just doing some really amazing things. However, on the flip side of that, there was a very dysfunctional campus pastor. He was young. And he ran the ministry like a cult. And in so many ways, especially to the leaders, and I was a part of leadership, it was his way or the highway. He would threaten that if we didn't listen to him, he would kick us out of the fellowship. And so a lot of us, we operated out of fear. And so we did everything out of fear because we didn't want to get in trouble by the campus pastor. And so because that wounded and hurt us so much, 
That when I left there, I went right back into the mess for this church after I graduated from college. And I kind of sought some healing there. But then when God called me into ministry and when he gave me the vision for Metro, I always said, God, we're going to do this thing. But I said, God, never, ever will I embrace like the charismatic tradition that I grew up in in college. Never. And that's when people came to this church, sometimes God brought charismatic people here. And they'll say, Peter, uh, do we speak in tongues during service? I said, no. We're not going to do that. I said, Peter, do we pray for healing? Do we pray for people to be delivered by, saint, by demons? I said, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that in this church. That's not what we're about. I mean, I believe in the spiritual gifts. I mean, I speak in tongues. When I pray, I pray in tongues. I mean, that's th- by myself, it's more of a private thing. It's not a public matter. And so I would do that for the longest time, for probably the first 16, 17 years. But then when I went to my doctorate program, my very first class, you guys know the story. Like Dr. Rob Reamer of Soul Care, he was just going to pray for every single one of us at the first day of class. And he was probably by where that speaker was. And as he was getting closer to me, I felt a, an authority by him. And I was getting slain by the, I felt I was getting slain by the spirit. And so I just said, I can't go down on the first day of class. It's too embarrassing. So I held on to my desk like this. And I was like, no, 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 I can't. I was just too weird. I don't know what, I was like, God, I don't know what you're doing. What are you doing? Why is this even happening to me? And he wasn't saying anything. He was just praying that I would have a good class. That's all he was praying for. And so it was so confusing to me. But by the end of it, God was saying, Peter, you've put boxes around me. And you have embraced me for who I truly am. That I've called you also, not just to preach the word, but I've called you to demonstrate my power. And so that was the choice. And so through that, I had to obey him. I was like, do I just embrace my tradition, meaning sort of operating out of a place of what I was hurt by and saying, no, we're not going to do any of these things. Or do I now start letting God do whatever he wants and be obedient to it? And through that, man, there are people on our staff that have been delivered from demonization. There are some of you that my staff has learned how to do that. And they've prayed for people in our church and our community where they've been delivered through demonization. There's been healings. There's been praying that we've been praying for one another. And it's all about do we encounter God? Yes. It's about our obedience. Our obedience supersedes our tradition or wherever what we might think God should be operating in. And so how much has your tradition prevented you from following after Jesus? Will you let him go and would you let him out of the box so that God can be God in your life? So what are the two things that he wants you to obey him in that will help you to get there? The two things that must supersede anything tradition that you might have. The two things he really wants you to obey, you, obey in. First is the great commandment. He wants you to obey him in the, with the great commandment. That's key, right, through the great commandment. Look at Luke 10, 25 to 28. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Then the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. This is the great commandment. The most important commandment of all. There's one commandment you're going to dedicate your life to is this one. Jesus said, the, the, the man said to Jesus, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. We have to be willing to dedicate our lives to obeying this great commandment. Now here's the thing. This is very hard to do. Because your neighbor is very different than what you think your neighbor is. Because when you look at the contextually, who's our neighbor? Who is really our neighbor? 
right? It's easy for you guys to love the people that you get along well with. You don't need God to love people that you get along well with. Even animals can do that, right? You really need God with those you don't get along well with, all right? And so this expert in the man, he says, who's my neighbor? Because he thought he was loving his neighbor. And then what does Jesus do? He rocks him. Look at verse 29. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Then a temple assistant, now some of your translations say a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his, on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bills run higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. And this religious man couldn't say the Samaritan. He says the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do same. Who's our neighbor? See, Jesus picks a priest and a Levite, two very spiritual people to not love the neighbor. Why weren't they able to love this Jewish man that was dying on the road? It was because of the tradition. Do you know that? Because traditionally, if, if they touched a man's blood, they would be unclean. So that's why they skipped over and they walked over to the other side. Because they couldn't even be close. Even proximity would make them unclean. So when they saw this dying man, this Jewish man that was dying on the road, they look at him and they said, nope, I got to go. I don't want to be unclean because the tradition told them you cannot love this person. Let him die. Who cares? Just go over to the other side. That's what the tradition taught him. And then Jesus, again, I told you the relationship between a Samaritan and a Jewish person. He chooses a Samaritan. That's why I love Jesus. He's awesome. He chooses a Samaritan to be the neighbor in the story. Right? Somebody who was hated by the Jewish people. And the religious leader couldn't even say it was a Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. All right, so Metro, get this. If you want to fulfill the great commandment, it doesn't happen unless you learn to love your neighbor as yourself. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it happens when you love your neighbor as yourself. But who is your neighbor? It's the Samaritan in your life. That's your neighbor. It's somebody from a different culture, a different ethnic race, somebody who is from a different socioeconomic class, somebody who might have special needs. We call them differentially able. Your neighbor could be your enemy, somebody that you're willing not to forgive, somebody who's hurt you, a family member, an ex, whoever it might be, a coworker, a boss, an ex-boss, whoever it might be, somebody that you would call your enemy. That is your neighbor. And Jesus says, if you want to obey me, if you don't want to die and you want to live in, and go to heaven, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. See, that's difficult to do. That's not easy. And so who in your life is that? Who is the Samaritan in your life that you need to learn to love? That's your neighbor. And, that, and I'm telling you right now, that is very difficult to do. If it was so easy, it would have been easy for the 12 to do it. But they even struggle with it. Peter the apostle, who was considered in the first century as the greatest Christian in the first century, was Peter the apostle. All right? He was like the head. He was like the head bishop. He was like the pope of the Protestant church. And Catholics call him the first pope. All right? He struggled with this. So much so that Paul had to rebuke him. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So it's not easy to love our neighbor. It's hard. 
to love the Samaritan. Look at verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they, that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, had discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You talk about rebuke. That's an ultimate rebuke. You see, Peter struggled to love his neighbor. And if Peter struggled with it, I think we do as well. I'm glad for your friends. I'm glad the friends that you have. But I'm telling you right now, if they all look like you, especially if you're part of this church, that's a problem. Because you don't need God for those relationships. We have 25 nations represented in this church, over 25. Will you consider them to be your brothers and sisters in Christ? And say, you know what? I've never connected with your race before, but I need to. I need to learn. I need to learn to love. We have a, a growing special needs ministry. Differentially able. I think that's a technical word now. I just love our volunteers out there. but would you consider them to be your brothers and sisters in Christ and embrace them and realize that you have a lot to learn from them because you do. I do. And I know you have enemies. I know there's people in your life that you consider to be unforgivable. But to obey the great commandment means that you've got to learn to forgive and hope the best for them, wish the best for them. That's what the great commandment is all about. Jesus says... Obey him in that. When we live out the great command, when that becomes more important than our tradition, good things can happen. Really good things. My parents, I mean, growing up, they taught us how bad the Japanese people were to, to them. My father was around during the Korean War. And he talked about that oppression. And it's almost as if they brainwashed me growing up as a young kid to hate the Japanese community because of what they did. And that's my tradition to never forget what, that, what happened when they colonized us as a country. But I gotta say to myself, am I gonna just follow tradition or am I gonna live out the great commandment? Right. To love, yeah. to love, right? And so I don't know what tradition you grew up in. I don't know what your parents have told you. But my hope and prayer is that some of you here, if you're leading small group, that would you lead small group with people from different cultures, different races, but that you might even really sense that God might call you to lead a small group with somebody from our special needs community. Oh, man, that's the picture of God for me. That's truly loving your neighbor itself. People in the world will scratch their heads and say, what in the world is going on in this church? How could Jesus not be real? Because they really do love people from all walks of life. That's special, I think. I went on sabbatical in 2014, and, when I, and before I came back, I, like, as soon as I came back, um, there was the height of what was happening with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I know Michael Carrion came and spoke a message right before I came back. And uh, I didn't get a chance to watch it. But when I came back, people were saying he should never come back and preach at Metro again. 
Because Michael talked about how important it is for Christians to love their neighbor, particularly supporting the black and brown community and what's going on in our country. And it offended a lot of our people. And so people said to me, we should never invite this guy back. And I'm thinking, but why? I mean, it's about loving our neighbor. It's the great commandment. It's about loving our neighbor as ourselves. And I remember just thinking that through. And so I'm just like, I'm going to keep preaching because that's exactly what this church is about. We cannot say when we have black and brown people in our community, we cannot say we don't care about what you care about. Just kind of do your own thing. But we should just kind of like not talk about it and just hang out and be in small groups and come to church and worship God together and not talk about what's hurting you. And so we did it. And we did it for a long time. We lost a lot of people. It was hard, man. We went through a financial crisis. I felt like a complete failure. It was difficult. It was difficult. But all we were trying to do is fulfill the great commandment. There were so many people in the church that are saying, why are you so political? We're not trying to be political. We're just trying to be gospel-centered as a church. That if God is bringing people from all walks of life, how do we not care about what they care about? How do we ignore 400 years of just slavery and how they've experienced oppression from the hands of government, people in power? How do we ignore those things? That it's not just a separate event when they see certain things that are happening in our society, but it's like pouring more salt in an unhealed wound. Right? And when I think about it, man, our church is better for it now when I think about where we are today. That we had to take a stand and God has blessed us and we've been able to grow and learn certain things. But all we're trying to do is fulfill the great commandment. That's it. And the great commandment is offensive because at the end of the day, guys, God's love is offensive. Some of us don't like the generosity of God's love. It's like that parable, right, when of the worker giving the same amount of wage to those who worked all day compared to those who worked an hour. Remember how angry the guys who worked all day did? They're like, well, how dare you give them the same amount that we did? We worked all day. God's love is that offensive. And when we choose to love in that way, it will be offensive to some. But are you willing to fulfill the great commandment? You cannot love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength if you're not willing to love your neighbor as yourself. That's gospel-centered, living out the great commandment. I hope that we can do that in this church, that we can learn to love each other in that way, support each other in that way, and stretch each other because the neighbor that God wants you and I to love is someone that is so different from us. It is a Samaritan in our lives. That's who he's calling us to love. That's not easy, but that's, who we call, that's, that's what he calls us to do. The last thing he wants us to obey is not only the great commandment, but the great commission. The great commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This was the very last thing Jesus commands his disciples to do before he leaves. This is a true commandment. And I love it because Jesus is telling each and every one of us, if you believe in Jesus, he's encouraging you that you would set your life up in a way where you would obey him by living out the great commandment. Now, how do you make disciples? There's two things in this passage that teaches us how you make disciples. The first thing is this. They get baptized in water, and then you teach them everything Jesus commands you. You teach them how to follow the commandments of Jesus Christ. That's how you raise up disciples. And I'm going to ask you, very politely, Are you doing that right now? Are there disciples in your life? Are there people you're thinking about in hopes that maybe one day you get to witness their baptism? Or one day you can teach them the ways of Jesus Christ? Now I know what you're thinking. 
You see, last Sunday we talked about Satan being your daddy. How does Satan father us? Satan fathers us when we start to believe that his lies are true. That's when Satan becomes our father. And so many of us believe in his lies about ourselves. And I, and I think with the great, great, great Commission, he's done a wonderful job of telling you guys lies so that you can believe in it so that you exempt yourself from this commandment. All right? And the thing he usually does is this. He'll tell you is this. You don't know enough about the Bible to do that. You really don't know enough. I mean, you barely read the Bible. How are you going to lead people to Jesus Christ? Don't even do it. That's wrong. You can't do it. You're a terrible witness. What a hypocrite you are. Right? And then the other thing he'll say to you is this. You know how sinful you are? You know how broken you are? You know what you just said to your wife or to your husband or to your son, to your daughter? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you can be a God's light to this world? You ain't light. You darkness. And so we start to believe these things, and then we think, well, no way, I'm not going to do it. And I'm here to tell you this. The Great Commission is not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's not about if you have the ability to do this. That's not, it's not about you. It's about God. Remember, Jesus says, I, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. So it's Jesus' authority. Can you imagine the disciples in John chapter 10, in Matthew chapter 10? I mean, Jesus is like, I'm sending you 12 out now and go do miracles. I mean, Jesus never taught them anything. They still didn't even believe Jesus was the Messiah at that point. They had no idea. And now they're supposed to do this? Look, what, look, the reason why they were able to do it is because of what Jesus says in verse 1. It says, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them the authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. And so that's it. All it is is this. Why were they able to do it? When they came back, they were all so giddy. They're like, hey, Jesus, it worked. Of course it worked because he's the one who did it. He gave them the authority. Of course it's going to work if you would actually believe that through the authority of Jesus Christ that lives inside of you through the Holy Spirit, if you allow it to, Jesus has already given you the authority to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that he has commanded you to do. Jesus is the one who does it. He gives you the authority to do it. He's just asking you to be a conduit. That's it. Will you be a conduit? Will you let him? Will you just be a vessel? And so you can do this. The great commission is possible. But you got to see that it's through his authority, not yours. We can all do it. And I'm just thinking, like, it's so sad because so many of us, God really wants to use you to bless people. And I hope that you would start thinking, like, Listen, some of you got great jobs, fantastic. But before you commit yourself fully to just that job, before anything, your job is to fulfill the great commandment. That supersedes anything. And so if you're just going to say, I'm just going to work at this job and that's it, I'm not going to do anything else. No, God's sending you there to be salt and light, to be used as a vessel. And so could you start thinking about some people that you start praying for, a coworker, a family member, a friend that doesn't know Jesus, and can you start praying for them that God would set up an opportunity for you to share with them how much God's impacted your life? Don't deny, don't underestimate what God could do through your life, really. And don't let fear be the reason why you decide not to do this. Because God wants you to obey him with the great, Commission. I wonder, I wonder what can happen and how God would use you. Could you imagine if we all said, all right, I'm going to pray for one person 
And somehow God in this past, in the next six months, allows it to happen. And they come to know Christ. God, we might have to move to a different location. <laughs> but folks, here's the reality. You read all the different things out there now. More people are lonely. They're more anxious. They're struggling with mental illness. Because they don't believe that there's a God who really loves them. And we can continue to ignore that. Or we can say, you know what? I'm going to share with them what I know. Because I would not be where I'm at if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. May your heart burn for that. May your heart really resonate in realizing that God is using you. He's giving you the authority to lead people to Jesus Christ. And I hope that you'll take that seriously. I really do. What will it be today? What tradition have you set up for yourself that's preventing you from living out the great commandment and the great commission? What sort of things have you said to yourself, convinced yourself of? What lies have you believed from Satan that tells you you shouldn't love your neighbor as yourself and you shouldn't go and make disciples of all nations? Our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations by loving our neighbor as ourself. I hope that you'll be able to do that. So today's my last day. I'm going on a sabbatical. I'll be gone. You won't see me until November. Right? And... Um, I remember when I first went on sabbatical, some of you were really angry. You're like, man, I don't get a sabbatical. What does this guy get to go on a sabbatical? <laughs> this is messed up, man. And so you were all angry that I went away and stuff. And then when I came back and you kind of saw what God did during those three months, I know some of you were like, man, he should go every year, right? Because <laughs> God is doing something in this man's life. Because he's a different person. And... Um, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to going on. I go every three years. I take three months every three years. Our, our pastors are given the same opportunity. They get to go as well on sabbatical every three years if they ask. And part of this is that I have to sort of set my life in certain ways and certain rhythms where I can take a step back, get on the balcony, and say, God, what are some new and fresh things you want to do in me? What are some new and fresh things you want to do in me so that you want to lead me, so that you can lead me to lead this church better? And so, like, when I really go away, it's like, in many ways, when I come back, I feel like God is rehiring me. And so what you need to know is, like, I'm not back to, like, I think it's November 3rd. That's the first Sunday in November. Like, I'm actually terrified to come back. Because I feel like it's the first day on the job for me. Because God has given me some visions, some different things that he wants me to lead Metro by. And it's not going to be the same thing as I left. It's going to be something different. And I realize how important that is for me. Now, I know you guys don't get those kinds of sabbaticals. But what I'm trying to say to you is this. you got to give yourself opportunities where you can take a step back and say, God, what do you want to do in me right now? What are some new things you want to do in my life? What do I need to begin to obey you in where I need to let go of some of my tradition and some of my old habits so that I can encounter you in new ways so new fresh possibilities will abound in my life? We need to do that. And sometimes our, if we don't, our traditions then become like this anchor that holds us down. And I, I just, I don't, I don't know. I, I really don't know if it's worth pursuing God when all you do is just pursue him in a way we just keep him in a box. God was never meant for you to keep him in a box. Will you let it go and let him be God in your life? I hope that all of you today will lay down your tradition and say, God, I'll do whatever it is you want me to do, wherever you want me to go. I will obey you. I will love my neighbor as myself. 
and I will share the gospel with anyone that you open the door for. I hope that you will do that. And may we do that so that may we be able to declare to Jesus, you are the great I am. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. God, I pray that you would show us. I pray that you would truly show us today areas that we have held on to too long, where we've put you in a box. And I really want to pray for those in this room that, um, that just sort of have a rhythm. The rhythms are great. Coming to church, praying. I pray especially for those Christians that just believe that their faith in you should just be about you blessing their life. God, that's not what our faith in you is about. It's not just about you blessing our life, but it's about us being a blessing to the world. Where have we gone so wrong with our understanding of who you are that we've forgotten what it means to be a follower of Jesus? It's not just so you can bless us in our lifetime, but it's so that we can be a blessing to others, the people who are hurting, the people who are dying on the side of the road, loving a Samaritan in our lives and believing that you could use us to baptize people and to lead them to the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, I pray that you would call us all in this room and those watching this amazing calling that you've placed upon our lives. And for those who've forgotten about that's what, that, that's what faith is all about, would you do something new in their life right now? Holy Spirit, would you enter upon them? And I pray for a special impartation of your Holy Spirit to be upon them right now and that you would set them apart for this good and a holy work that you call us to. And God, that our hearts would break for the lost the way your heart breaks for them. That we wouldn't be so selfish and so consumed by our own selves and our own lives and just go to you in prayer just so that you can bless our life. But that, you would, that we would go to you realizing, God, that you've chosen us to make an impact in this world. And so, God, speak to us. Strengthen us. Call us. And may we obey. Because we declare that you are the great I am. And so thank you, Lord, for this passage. As hard as it is for us to digest, thank you that you call us to obey you. Thank you that you challenge our traditions. And may you allow us to love our neighbor as ourselves so that we can love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Will you help us to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that you've commanded us to do. And I thank you for the guarantee you give to us when you say, and surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. And so God bless this church. May we never be a country club. May we always be a community of believers that has a passion for the least, the last, and the lost. Thank you, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.